Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in and you know what I'm going to say. As ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. I'll make a couple of notices, kind of like assembly notices. And then if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to... uh, address a question. I'm not going to answer it, I don't think, uh, conclusively. Um, I'd be an epic genius in charge of everything if I could. But the question is, where is the economic growth coming from? Now, I know some of you do not think economic growth is necessarily inherently a good thing for climate change reasons, etc. But I'm not on that wing of the rock and roll politics cooperative. Without growth, we're not going to get the improvements in the public services. And yet it is a challenge because without improvements in the public services, transport, childcare, etc., can't quite see how we're going to get the growth. Anyway, I'm going to be exploring that, if that's okay with all of you. And then over to your brilliant questions. So that's what we've got in our time together. Get running, baking, uh, tiling, or whatever you're up to as you listen to the podcast. A couple of notices. First of all, those of you who subscribe to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, the July bonus is going to be a live edition exclusive to Patreon subscribers at 7 o'clock on Monday, July the 24th. And we can therefore have a live discussion together trying to make sense of it all and it will be the Monday after the by-elections we've got these three by-elections coming up on the previous Thursday and of course there are all kinds of other things whirling around which we can delve deep in our time together on that live event and if you can't make it uh, those of you on Patreon it will be there as a recording for you to look at and to sort of join in the discussion and so on that way. Uh, So subscribe to Patreon. If you do, there are loads of bonus podcasts in there. You get a bonus mug and all kinds of other things. So please do uh, more of you subscribe to that. And for those of you who do, thank you and see some of you on Monday, July the 24th. And after that, of course, Rock and Roll Politics is live at the Edinburgh Festival from August the 13th every day a different show every day a different theme and uh, we will have some fun as we delve deep at the edinburgh festival tickets are available at the edinburgh fringe website and with the link on the blurb to this podcast now economic growth where's it going to come from Uh, this is on the assumption that there is a Labour government after the election, which will probably be held in the autumn of next year. And one of the so-called missions is to achieve the highest level of growth in the G7 of this government. But how? Uh, It's a very exciting end, but what about the means? It's always a test when you hear a leader proclaim if you have to pose the question, how? What are the means to a desirable end? And if the means aren't clear, um, there is trouble ahead. Now, obviously, in a pre-election period, not all means are spelt out by a opposition party wanting to win, because if they were to be wholly candid, they would generate uh, vote-losing headlines in a hostile media. But 
there has to be some clarity about the means. And there seems to me to be very little. Uh, if you listen carefully to Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, it is clear, well, you don't have to listen actually that cl clearly, it is clear that the past is a heavy burden on her shoulders, and in particular, the election of 1992, uh, where Labour lost. Uh, in most cases, people expected them to win. And that one is the one that kind of shaped the build-up to 97 in the new Labour era of extreme caution, sticking to Tory spending plans, sticking to income tax levels as specified by the Tory government. And clearly that's the kind of contrast in her mind as she prepares, I was going to say prepares for government, but prepares for the election. Uh, 92, disaster. 97, a beautiful primrose path to power by basically following Tory tax and spend plans. And you can see with Keir Starmer, uh, he will say what he considers is necessary to win an election. But they are 20 points ahead. Now, no doubt they would argue they are 20 points ahead because they are saying what is required to win an election. But in such circumstances, and by the way, the bulk of that swing is to do with the reaction against the Tory government. Wherever I go now, and everyone must be experiencing this, not least Tory MPs worried about losing their seats, there is uh, an intense reaction to the chaos of Britain after a very long period of one-party rule. So that means there must be some space to reflect on what Labour would do in government and what they need to say now to give them the space to do it. But if you are sticking broadly to uh, Tory tax and spending plans with the strictest of fiscal rules to reassure the markets, the Tory newspapers, uh, so-called Middle England or Tony Blair's view of what Middle England is. These are huge constraints on power and what you can do with power. Uh, but most fundamentally of all, they do not clearly lead towards a path where the economy starts growing. And it's very interesting if you kind of look around at distinguished economists and their theories, you begin to see roots by which the economy might recover, and these roots are being blocked. There was a very good piece in the Financial Times by a brilliant economist, Kate Barker, she did quite a lot on housing, how the heck you pay for the NHS and so on. Under Gordon Brown, when he was Chancellor and then Prime Minister, a lot of it didn't get anywhere, but they were brilliant reports from Kate Barker. She's an imaginative economist who thinks beyond Treasury orthodoxy or who dares to, even though she's immersed in that world. And she said the best way of dealing with inflation, of course, while inflation remains stubbornly high, economic growth is not going to come, certainly not in the kind of stagflation that the UK seems to be enduring. And she says there's one route 
way you can address this, and that is that you tax the better off at higher rates than uh, currently doing so, and therefore take some of their money out of the system, but you also get money to invest as well in public services. Um, that route emphatically blocked. I understand why Labour blocked that route. They do not see a way in which they make a case to the electorate which involves taxing income of any sort at any level, however wealthy the potential figure is. But, by the way, although in 92, that did cause Labour big problems, the so-called tax bombshell, the double whammy under Labour of higher borrowing, higher taxes, and all the kind of propaganda that was pumped out against Labour in 92, proposing, as it did then, relatively modest uh, tax rises. There are, incidentally, plenty of other elections where Labour were bolder and did quite well. Uh, you know, the sort of 64 election, the 66 election, uh, Labour don't do well very often. Uh, the two elections in 74, the one that's been airbrushed out of history, the 2017 election, where against the expectations of uh, the right of the Labour Party and the commentariat, uh, Labour made significant gains. They all point to different kind of lessons to be learned. It's very interesting. It didn't get anywhere. But in 64, Harold Wilson, who had deep experience of the Treasury and other government departments, he had been a very youthful president of the Board of Trade in that late 45 government. He set up a Department of Economic Affairs to counter the kind of treasury orthodoxies and to find ways of stimulating the economy. It didn't work for lots of reasons, but they were kind of bold ideas about how you generate economic growth that kind of gets you out of the box of strict fiscal rules that stop anything from happening in this rundown country. And we know about 2017, it was an excess of offerings, uh, but there was within the offerings a connection between certainly younger people and a set of propositions that made connections with their lives, you know, a government that would address housing issues actively, that would be sort of education from birth to death if you wanted it, and so on. There were connections made. And not everyone responded in horror and voted against because of the limited tax rises that were being proposed. It was, the, 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 to use another cliche, the sums didn't quite add up. <laughs> but it's not just the case of 92, propose a few tax rises and you're destroyed. 97, you don't, apart from a couple of popular tax rises like a one-off tax on privatised utilities as they did then. So Pat Barker, anyway, did that. And of course, Labour, by the way, now uh, copying the 97 model at a time, by the way, of considerable economic growth anyway, 3% a year, I think, in 97. Nothing now. So, you, you know, you've got the kind of Pat Barker idea. Another one, obviously, is to... Um, get back into the single market. And that's been ruled out as well. 
the more we find out about the Brexit deal as negotiated by Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost, a prime minister with a famously wayward attention span and an unelected mediocrity trying to impress the prime minister on whose whole political future he was dependent, as well as having, if you read his columns, a range of simplistic right-wing views. This was the duo that produced a deal that has been catastrophic. But anyway, all of that has been ruled out. And again, you can understand the electoral uh, risks of keeping the door just slightly ajar. But if you were to do so, that would be a route towards economic growth. Blocked. And so it seems uh, other things, um, the Shadow Education Secretary, Bridget Philipson, went to various countries to look at their national childcare schemes and came back with two conclusions. One, it can energise election campaigns. It energised the Labour campaign in Australia, the proposition of a really ambitious childcare scheme. And in other countries, it does generate economic growth as well as well-being because more people can go to work, pay taxes, and that improves productivity, gets money in for the public services, etc. But because of the fear of saying anything, that route too is blocked. So that leaves a huge dependence on the Green Recovery Plan as a generator of economic growth, but that too now hovers somewhat ambiguously. The uh, borrowing for it will not happen at first and may not happen at all if the economy doesn't stabilise in a way that gives uh, Rachel Reeves the confidence as Chancellor to borrow uh, at 28 billion quid a year. And even if the borrowing is reached and the investment is made, it's not entirely clear that economic growth is guaranteed from it. It seems to me that economic growth arises from uh, other things. Certainly, there needs to be a connection with the biggest single market on our doorstep, um, but improvements in transport, improvements in health, obviously education, education becoming more vocational as well as uh, the focus on conventional kind of degrees and so on. Uh, training, you know, to be competitive. Now, all of this involves that famous word reform. Of course, it involves reform. Reform is a constant need in public services as demands change, as demographics change. But I'm afraid it does require investment. And the problem is if you feel that investment is seen as a threat in the build-up to an election, because it implies somehow profligacy or recklessness, or that you're going to tax people's wallets um, in, in a way that is indiscriminate and iniquitous. Well, I just pose the question, where is the growth going to come from? And as I say, listen very carefully to what people say on all sides of politics. And if Instead of addressing questions, it raises more questions about the means, the how, how, oh, right, yeah, great, economic growth, that is 
our mission. Great. How? And if the caution is so intense, caution itself can become pre-election quite risky. But anyway, let's see how um, the build-up to the election develops. I think, in a way, uh, there are going to be some interesting tests for uh, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves. The party conference will be one of them, where there will have to be a sense of the how question being addressed in a range of kind of uh, policy areas. To say not to the point that they are conceding needlessly pre-election terrain, but there needs to be a sense when they get into government that uh, they have an agenda for government, not just an agenda to win an election. I know Keir Starmer feels the burden of the past, that he has to be Neil Kinnock, John Smith, Tony Blair, all at once in terms of going from 83 to 97, uh, in his case, from the last election, 2019, to now. But what about when they're all in there, in government, facing all these challenges? What is the agenda that begins to generate the economic growth that they say, and I believe, is the key to getting Britain out of this malaise? Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, to your questions. The address, steverick14 at icloud.com. As ever, to raise points, join the wider discussion, pose questions. And I'm going to begin because it's on the same theme, but puts a kind of wider, fairer point. It's from Dr. Dawn Renfrew. And Dawn says, just a thought on the perennial theme of Labour's inability to capture the enthusiasm of the nation. Although most voters don't follow politics closely, there may be a sense among them that it's hard to imagine just how a new Labour government is going to solve all the problems the country is facing. And at a time of many crises on a global scale, including the climate emergency, perhaps people can see that the right-wing press and the bond markets won't let Labour borrow much money to invest in solutions. Perhaps they have a sense that the Conservative government has sold all the jerseys, which they have when you think about how costly Brexit has been and how much the pandemic costs the public purse. I'd like to think there is at least an element of this realism in people's minds when considering a way forward, rather than that the current shadow cabinet is intrinsically unappealing. I think they're good, but are simply in a difficult position. So I'm I'm pleased Dawn wrote that in because it's a sort of counter in a way to what I was just saying. Um, Where the heck are they going to get the growth from? And she raises all the problems in the build-up to an election. So you've got a sort of counter view there. 
the economy is completely screwed. And if you make the case that it is screwed, it is then hard in the next second to say, okay, we're going to sort out the health service, the education service, we're going to do universal childcare and all the rest of it. However, Dawn, what I would add is that the Tories in opposition, uh, when they move towards election-winning positions, aren't so cautious. So if you look at uh, the build-up to 1979, uh, the economy was on its knees, inflation was raging, uh, there was industrial action on a seismic scale. And Thatcher proposed, she didn't say we're going to do the same more or less as a, uh, the outgoing Labour government. It was a Tory radical programme. Uh, it's a myth, by the way, that the 79 manifesto was sort of cautiously expedient. There was a bit of that, but it was quite radical. And in power, those early budgets uh, were evangelical in their boldness. Monetarism tried out across Britain as an experiment, a failed one, but nonetheless tried out. North Sea oil blown to sustain it. But they were bold. And in the build-up to 2010, similarly so, there was none of this, well, you know, the Labour government's been terrible, but because they've been terrible, we can't do very much. In they came with a sort of turbocharged Thatcherite experiment. But Labour, uh, caution, caution, you, you, you explain why, but I sometimes fear that the level of caution, as I say, is a kind of risk in itself. And the only model that they look at is 97 and those who are around Keir Starmer brief against anyone a millimetre to the left of Tony Blair in the shadow cabinet and sort of brief to newspapers. They're going to stick to Tory spending plans, stick to this, stick to that, uh, following that 97 model. But there are other models, the sort of Tory boldness. It's easier for them because the newspapers are on their side. Uh, but there are other models. And I do sometimes wonder whether caution is risky. It certainly will be in government, but in the build-up too. But, but thank you for explaining, because it's always important to do so, how bloody difficult it is uh, being in opposition as Labour in any context. Um, it, it is really hard. Now, we've been returning to our debate recently about the NHS and how the heck it's funded. There's a challenge for any government, um, whether co-payments are a good idea and all the rest of it. Anyway, got an email from Ivor Freed. When the NHS was introduced, a great backlog of untreated ailments was uncovered. I don't want to go back there, nor do I want to go back to a place where access to medical care is rationed by the ability to pay. Of course, at the end of the day, all medical treatment has to be paid for. The most efficient way to do that is collectively. But there is still an irreducible core cost that has to be met through some form of taxation. Once all the efficiencies have been achieved, the only way to reduce that care cost further is to deny the full range of medical treatments to some patients. I suggest that as a developed society, that is not a situation we should countenance. So for that reason, the NHS must be kept free at the point of use with contributions taken through tax or NI, national insurance, according to the ability to pay. Well, Ivor, yes, uh, ideally so, but given all the things that we've just been talking about in our time together in this podcast, um, 
the fear of putting up tax, uh, the pressure on Labour to rule out any tax increases or national insurance increases before an election kind of blocks off that route. Hence the focus they're putting on economic growth to pay for the needed increases. They're also putting a focus on reform because that impresses newspapers and uh, Tony Blair and so on. Um, but reform is, of course, is needed at all times, all times. But it doesn't necessarily recruit the doctors and the nurses and pay for the drugs. And so you ha do have to find the money. But uh, there's an ideological resistance in the Tory party and a fear in the Labour party of putting up taxes. So how is it going to be paid for? And co-payments, if they were to be introduced, would not apply to all. Of course, that's part of the problem with co-payments. Where is the cutoff? Um, is it worth it if the cutoff involves quite a substantial part of the population, not least the elderly who need more treatments? But we pose another question. How do we pay for the NHS? And the answers are complex. But thank you for putting the case for uh, the current uh, method of raising the money. Okay, on we go. Uh, thank you, Ivor. Fraser Odes, uh, why does everyone less left of centre criticise Keir Starmer, whether it's people on the left saying he's broken his promises or people more central saying he should talk about the EU? They all say how disappointed they are. This seems unfair as he's brought back the party from a huge defeat and Labour now is consistently 15 to 20 points ahead in the polls. What more does he have to do. So this is sort of along the lines of Dawn. And um, I would always acknowledge if Labour sustain a lead of 20%, even though it is largely a reaction against the chaos of the Tory years, and it took the Liz Truss era for that chaos to really sink in. Um, it should have sunk in long before, but it, it did. And the final months of Johnson and the chaos and corruption of that era. But uh, it is, of course, an achievement. And leading the Labour Party is impossibly difficult. You know, it's got so many different factions. I mean, it's got the sort of, the one that appears to be in control at the moment, a sort of hard right faction, busy expelling people or trying to expel people. And then it's got, you know, all kinds of different levels. It's a difficult, difficult thing to do. But the reason they're all criticised because the hopes invested in these leaders are so high. And if they are not realised, even in opposition, people become frustrated. If you're pro-European, you're going to be frustrated. If, you know, to go back to my thing, if you want to see the route towards growth being spelt out a bit, you're going to be frustrated. Um, it was the same with Blair. When he was sort of 20, 30 points ahead in the polls, there was still a huge amount of frustration in that early period with him across the board. And it's the fate of Labour leaders. And to some extent these days with a more restive Tory party, Tory leaders too, to be kind of treated with disdain and anger, etc. Uh, now, over to France quickly, because we've got an update from our French correspondent, Dominique Jewell, on the French riots. Um, she says, it's worth noting that the 2005 riots lasted for three weeks, and the recent civil unrest was brought under control within a week, 
with the general public more or less satisfied that the government had got to grips with the situation. This was achieved by the presence of 45,000 law enforcement officers, but also Macron appealing to the parents of the youngsters to take responsibility for their children, a call which was heeded by many mothers and grandmothers whose physical presence on the streets at night seemed to be an effective deterrent. Amidst the calm, the situation remains febrile, and unless there's a major political drive to redress the social imbalances, perceived or otherwise, repeated and periodic instances of violent unrest are here to stay in France. Of course, to one degree or another, unfortunately, the same can be said for many parts of the world. Yeah, well, it does seem to have faded a bit. I've just uh, I had a weekend in Provence, which was not exactly reporting on the scene of the rioting. Uh, but we did fly into Marseille, and nothing seemed to be going on at all. You know, people started the week saying, you know, think twice about going to France. So it does seem to have subsided. But thank you for giving some insights into what has been uh, happening vis-a-vis those riots and the relative calm now. Val Hudson refers to our kind of reflections on that term reform, again, the latest kind of casual use of this ubiquitous term reform. And she says, I wonder if I analysed a Times editorial which casually banded around this term reform in a way that wouldn't pass a kind of O-level essay, but, you know, kind of, oh, yeah, reform, reform. Um And Val says, I wonder if you and the Times could make absolutely clear that the social care is already a contributory means-tested system. There's no room for any person to pay any more unless you start charging people who have less than £14,000, and that would be very cruel. So there we are, Val. I've passed that uh, information on. Uh, the, The Times editorial just made a whole range of casual opinions, assertions around reform uh, that hadn't been thought through at all. But you just mention the word reform and the Times get, oh yeah, that's the solution. Doesn't need money. Reform. Uh, And you get, I've read a column this week from uh, John Rental of The Independent. The key thing is reform and modernization. What does that mean? Uh, These things have to be challenged or else we're, we're in deep trouble. We're in deep trouble as a country. We've got to be clearer. Uh, over to Ed Pearson, who's tiling in the Cotswolds. Well, Ed, well, that is such a somehow romantic image of you tiling in the Cotswolds. Uh, oh, yeah, he says a related challenge, which you didn't expressly consider in terms of this whole debate about tax and spend, is any accounting for every penny of taxes raised, exactly from whom the tens of billions of pounds are going to come from for meaningful NHS improvements, extra rail carriages, additional mental health provision. Yeah, because I was arguing that when money is raised, every halfpenny should be accounted for and explained. And Labour were going to do that when they put taxes up to pay for the NHS, but then it all got lost in a row about foundation hospitals and whether they could go bust and all the rest of it. Um, Yeah, who will pay for the money? Yeah, well, it's a fair point, but I have to tell you, uh, pre-election, no one's going to specifically say, Ed, uh, who's going to pay for it, because you'll be inviting them not to vote for you. But it is part 
of it. Obviously, there needs to be a much more mature debate about tax and spend. Uh, And there needs to be, you know, public spending rounds. It's another really interesting thing. So a government gets in and announces it's going to do a public spending round. Uh, and it's all done in secret. And then huge figures are announced, uh, even when Osborne was busy cutting public spending in real terms in his sort of Thatcherite approach to the economy, uh, even though the BBC and others saw this as centrism because their demeanour was polite and charming and engaged. Um, they are still huge sums of money, incomprehensible figures to voters in terms of the scale, you know, billions and billions of pounds. So it needs to be broken down accessibly and show where everything is being invested. And if there is waste, that needs to be exposed too. Um, And then I think voters will make connections between improvements in their lives and the money raised to make those improvements. But every hate needs to be accounted for. And as I say, if there's waste, acknowledge it and sort it out. Um, you know, I, I, I worked at the BBC for many years and it's overmanaged to this very day. And that needs to be sorted out. And if that applies to other areas like the NHS, that needs to be sorted out. Um, but hail also where the improvements are being made. Um, Michael Haskell wonders, uh, he said, I've been catching up on old episodes on the podcast. In episode 98 in September 2021, you got a lot of catching up to do, Michael. Uh, You mentioned your audiobook of the Prime Ministers we never had and the effort involved in reading it aloud. When you were writing the book, did you know you were going to be reading it for the audio version? And if so, did that in any way influenced the way you wrote the book. I'm, I'm reading that out, Michael, because I'm about to do it again. I've got another book coming out in September. And later this month, I'm going to be stuck in a studio for four days reading it aloud. And it is a very interesting experience reading it aloud because it's very different from broadcasting a program, you know, for Radio 4 or whatever, uh, or doing, as I've done for the BBC, improvised talks, ad-lib talks without a script to camera on various themes. You're in there reading 110,000 words. Um, and it's it's quite alarming. I don't know, I've sp- spoken to a lot of authors about it. I've come across one who enjoys the experience. It's partly claustrophobic being stuck in the studio for so long. Uh, but no, you don't write with that in mind, but it's a good question because broadcasting is a different language to writing a book and writing for television again is very different from writing from radio but but writing for a book is for a start there are many many more words in a book I mean a kind of half hour program for Radio 4 there aren't that many words as I say a book can be over a hundred thousand so you don't but yeah I'm, I'm taking a deep breath now just getting ready to be stuck in a studio for four days uh, later this month. But it's quite a good experience as well because what happens when you have a book out is you go to festivals to talk about it. I'll certainly be talking about it on this podcast, the next book. And reading it aloud gives you ideas for how you can structure those talks. And so it is quite useful. Anyway, I thought that, what a thank you for the question because it's given me to... Uh, sort of talk 
self-indulgently, if you don't mind, for a second. Uh, now, I think we better stop there, uh, but we've got some brilliant uh, other questions. Mark Williams on resolving the teacher's pay dispute, which is a huge uh, running theme and um, highlights another problem with Labour's spending plans because he makes the point that Labour's offer of £2,500 as kind of one-off payment is no more than a sticking plaster applied to a severed artery, but finding the money is going to be tricky. Uh, Peter Fanning, who uh, made a brilliant point recently about central and local and the pressure in terms of monitoring money and keeping uh, account of the money, uh, he makes a point about it's so much easier to destroy than build. So why try to build anything? Uh, the challenges of finding the people in the public sector after a period of decline who will know the best ways of investing and building, given the lack of it in recent years. And it's a it's a perennial problem. Uh, there's an interesting model from London when Ken Livingston became mayor of London. Uh, he just said, right, you know, we're not used to infrastructure in Britain. And in terms of sorting the underground out, he got in the best people from New York as part of a whole range of things that really did help revive London. Um, in that period, his first term as mayor, it started to go wrong after that. By the way, Peter says, Summer Songs by Leighton Stone Folk is live on July the 15th at St. John's Leighton Stone. So if any of you want an evening with a glass of white wine, if you're allowed it, or red wine, or whatever. Uh, that's where it is. Um, yeah. Uh, Angela Walker explained in more detail why a four-day week was proving more productive. I asked her for more information. She's given it to me. Uh, yeah. Paul Cooper wonders about the factionalism in Labour and the sense of a sort of tit-for-tat. The left faction were in charge, now the right faction in charge, and it's sort of internal kind of tit for tat there's a bit of that going on Paul I can tell you and it is destructive and makes Labour seem disturbed perhaps even more disturbed than it really is who knows anyway before we go I'd like to take this moment to say thank you to my Patreon subscribers who make it possible for me to do this podcast some of whom are and excuse me if the pronunciation is not always right let me know if that's the case Penny Smith, Madeline French, Mark Wardrop, Stephen J. Dimelo, Mike McAtominy, Delith Gregory, Roz, Susan Lintert, Julian Rudd, Vanessa Rowlands. Thanks so much. And to find out about becoming a Patreon subscriber and receiving exclusive benefits, including that live event later this month, click on the link in the show notes. Well, sorry, I haven't got time for more, but we've crammed a lot in from where's economic growth to how do you read these audible books and does it influence your writing? Actually, there's a whole self-indulgent podcast on, uh, on that. Anyway, look, thank you so much for tuning in. If you could leave a few reviews, spread the word, say to people, look, if you want to delve deep, listen to Rock and Roll Politics, join the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for tuning in and yeah let's get together soon there's a lot going on as i speak there's a bbc crisis which um has many many layers 
to it, but that's a moving story. So no more on that from me at the moment, uh, but there might be. Anyway, thank you. Take care. See you soon. Bye.